We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, would you help us Uh, to believe this morning that none of us are in this room by accident, and would you give us hearts and minds that are soft to you, soft to your voice, soft to your words, soft to what you would have to say to us today. We pray that you would come and speak to us, that you would speak through all of the distractions of our lives, speak through all of the chaos of our lives speak through all of the things that have us discouraged or overwhelmed or just numb to you. We pray that you would come and speak. We need your voice, God. We we need you more than we realize. We are totally dependent on you, and yet we're so often not in touch with that truth, and yet here you've brought us into this room to remind us that we desperately need you and that you long to give yourself to us. So give us hearts that would be soft, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and if I haven't met you yet, I would love to get to meet you after the service today. Um, Today is the last Sunday of Advent, and if you're not familiar with that, you've never really heard that word before, Advent is something that Christians all over the world celebrate. Uh, It is the four-week season leading up to Christmas, and the word Advent simply means coming, and so it's this four-week season where Christians all over the world, not just people at Res Oak, Uh, We didn't come up with this, but Christians all over the world for for 2,000 years have been looking back to Jesus' first coming at Christmas. 
This is the radical claim of Christianity, that God broke through the universe and he came into this world. But we don't just look back to his first coming at Christmas, we look forward to his second coming when Jesus has promised to return and to make all things new. And so for this Advent season, we've been in this sermon series entitled, He Shall Be Called. And uh, there's this very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Of, it's a prophecy of Christ. And it goes like this. It says, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called... And then we get these four names. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Who is God and what is God like? God is an everlasting Father, a Wonderful Counselor, a Mighty God, and a Prince of Peace. And if you've never known this God, you can know Him today. And maybe that's why you're in this room. Maybe God has brought you here so that you could meet Him for the first time. Uh, What we've been doing each week in this sermon series is we've been taking one of these names and we've been looking at a passage in the New Testament to learn more about what these names tell us about Jesus, who He is, what He came to do, and how it ought to change our lives. And today we're looking at the very last name, which is Prince of Peace, and that's actually the theme of our passage this morning. Um, Peace is all over this passage. Paul says in in verse 14 that Jesus himself is our peace. And then he says in verse 17 that when Jesus came to this earth, it was to preach peace. This is a passage where the Apostle Paul cannot stop talking about the peace that Jesus came to bring, which is interesting because when you read the Christmas story, the actual Christmas story, I don't mean the movie, the Christmas story, I mean when you read the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus, peace is one of the major themes there as well. And I'll give you just one example. In Luke chapter 2, the shepherds are out in the field, and an angel shows up and says, Christ has been born. And then the shepherds hear the angels burst out into song. And you know what their song is? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace. Peace is at the center of the Christmas story. And if you don't understand, you won't understand Christmas until you understand the peace that Jesus came to bring. This is so important, this name that we're looking at today. So I want to look at just three things. What is this peace that Jesus came to bring? Why, why, why do we so often not experience it? And then how can we have it? Pretty simple outline today. What is this peace? Why do we not experience it, and how can we have it? So first, what is the peace that Jesus came to bring? Okay, when you think about the peace of God, what is it that comes to mind for you? I'm going to guess that most of us in this room, when we think about the peace of God, we think about this kind of internal peace. There's this really famous passage in Philippians chapter 4 that says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and listen to this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
When we think of the peace of God, this is what we think of. We think of this, this inner peace, this internal peace, you know, peace for our worry and peace for our anxiety and peace in the midst of all of our troubles, this inner peace. I want you to know something. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the peace that Jesus offers to you. Life is really hard. And if it hasn't gotten hard for you yet, it will. There are moments where it is so overwhelming and you can feel so overcome. But God actually offers to you a peace that can transcend even the hardest and most difficult circumstances in life. It's an amazing peace. That is not the only peace, though, that Jesus came to bring. What this passage tells us is that he didn't just come to bring an inner peace, but he came to bring relational peace. Peace not just inside of us, but peace between us. Particularly, peace between us and people who are nothing like us. See, in this passage, Paul could not have picked two more different groups of people than Jews and Gentiles. They had a long history of division. But he says in verse 15, listen to this, he says that Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Paul is saying the reason Jesus came into this world, the reason for Christmas, was so that he could create a new community made up of people who in the world's eyes should have nothing to do with one another. There's this really famous story from World, this is such a hard, World War I. Why is that so hard to say? World War I. Uh, historians call this story the Christmas truce. Have you heard of this story? This is an amazing story. Uh, it was in World War I, Christmas Eve, 1914. For five months, there had been intense fighting. Almost a million people had already lost their lives. Uh, but on Christmas Eve in 1914, uh, some of the German soldiers who were in the trenches on the front lines began singing Silent Night. And the English soldiers who were on the opposing side were in their own trenches, and they were bracing for a long, hard, cold night, they, they heard these German soldiers, enemy soldiers, singing Silent Night, and they began singing along. And that night, no guns were fired. The next morning, Christmas morning, Christmas Day, one of the British soldiers walked out to the middle of the field, in between the two trenches where all of the fighting had been taking place, and he was met by one of the German soldiers, officers who walked out, and they agreed to a temporary ceasefire. You know what happened next? Soldiers on both sides, by the hundreds, walked out into this field. Christmas Day. People who had been trying to kill one another. You know what they did? They started exchanging gifts and wishing one another Merry Christmas. And then they played a game of soccer, which I think that's where a lot of people are this morning. They're watching the World Cup. <laughs> where is everybody? This place was packed full last week. What's going on? We got all these empty rows? 
Live stream people, we know you're watching the World Cup. All right. Don't tell me the score. I'm recording it. I will be very mad at you if you tell me what happened. Um, they played a game of soccer. Uh, one British soldier actually wrote a letter to a local newspaper after this happened. And this is what he, he, he wrote. He said, all this talk of hate, all this firing at each other that has raged since the beginning of the war quelled and stayed by Christmas. It is a great hope for, our, for future peace when two great nations hating each other as foes have seldom hated, one side vowing eternal hate and vengeance and setting their venom to music, should on Christmas Day lay down their arms, exchange smokes, and wish each other happiness. One of the German officers, they found his diary, and he wrote this in it. He said, how marvelously wonderful it was. Christmas managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. If you think that Christmas is all about just some warm fuzzies inside for a couple weeks, and it's just this sentimental kind of internal peace that is supposed to happen to you, friends, you are so missing out on what Christmas is about. I mean, this illustration, this story, it is an incredible picture of the peace that Jesus came to bring. He came to bring people together who don't naturally belong together. And I want you to know something. He brought it to that battlefield that day, but he longs to bring it to our city today. Is there anything that our city needs right now more than this peace? I don't know if you've noticed this, but people don't get along here. Have you noticed this? People do not get along. There is so much hostility, and there is so much division. There is racial division. There is political division. There is economic division. There is neighborhood division. See, but Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring people together who in the world's eyes do not belong together. And this is why we talk so much about diversity as one of our core values as a church. That is not just because we are trying to check some kind of box the churches are supposed to check. See, the church is not meant to be a place where everyone looks the same. And it's not meant to be a place where everybody has the same socioeconomic status. And it's not meant to be a place where everybody lives in the same neighborhood. It is meant to be a place that reflects the beauty and the breadth of God's kingdom. It's meant to be a place that is a foretaste of heaven where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will live together in perfect peace and unity. Amen. Amen. And if you are new and you walk into this room today, and you, maybe you're, you're looking around and you're thinking, I don't see anybody here who's like me. The temptation for you will be to not come back. But it actually ought to be the exact opposite. Because if you walk in here today and you don't see anybody who looks like you, you know what that means? That means that we need you. And you know what it means? It means that you need us. See, we are deprived when we are not in relationship with people who are different than us. And that's the beauty of the church. 
is that it's actually meant to be a community where all of these walls that divide us get torn down. And you see, the question is, if this is what Jesus came to do in the church, then why don't we experience more of it? You know, Dr. Martin Luther King once said that 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in our nation. And that has changed, but we still have a ways to go. And you see, if this is what Jesus came to do, why don't we just see it? Why do we not see more of it, uh, not just in our church, but in our city and in our world? And this brings us to the second point. Why do we not experience it? Now, this passage, you've got to stick with me for a minute, because it, here's what it does. Here's what Paul does. He gives us a case study that reveals a universal truth as to why hostility and division have always been a thing in our world. And the case study is Jews and Gentiles. Now, by Jews, Paul is referring to the Old Testament people of God. And by Gentiles, he's referring to everyone else. Now, you're going to see in just a minute, Paul, he has some pretty harsh things to say about the Jewish people. Paul, you might think, oh, Paul's, he's, he's being anti-Semitic. No, Paul is not being anti-Semitic. Paul himself is Jewish. See, Paul is not being anti-Semitic. What Paul is doing in this case study is he is simply showing us the sin of his own people as well as his own sin. And really what we're going to see in just a minute is that it is a sin that is universally true of every person in this room and every person who has ever lived. All right, so the case study goes like this. In the Old Testament, God called Israel to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. He set them apart. And he said, okay, your job is to show the world what life with me and under me looks like. The world was meant to see the way that they lived, the way that they forgave, the way that they cared for the poor, the way that they treated every person as though they were made in the image of God. The world was meant to see all of this and be attracted to God. Israel was meant to be a bridge connecting people to God, but instead they became a barrier. And they became a barrier for two reasons, both of which Paul picks up on in this passage. Number one, they thought they were culturally superior. And number two, they thought they were morally better. They thought they were culturally superior. So let's look at the text here for a minute. In verses 11 through 13, Paul starts talking about circumcision. Like, man, I thought we were going to get a Christmas passage today. What's all this circumcision, uncircumcision stuff? In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign that you were ethnically Jewish and that you were part of God's people. And uncircumcision was a sign that you weren't. So when you come to the New Testament, what you have is you have all of these people, these Jewish people who are becoming, who are meeting Jesus and they're becoming Christians. And they start saying to all of these Gentile Christians, oh, God can love you. You can be part of God's family. All you have to do is become like us. You take on our culture and our traditions. 
See, but they didn't just think they were culturally superior, they thought they were morally better. Now, in verse 14, Paul says that Jesus has made the two groups one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles there again. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what is this wall, this dividing wall that Paul is talking about? Commentators say that Jewish Christians had put a wall in the temple. They'd erected a literal wall. It was four feet, six inches high. And this wall separated the outer part of the temple where the Gentiles could be from the inner part where only the Jewish people could be. And for, for a Gentile to go across this wall actually meant death. And you see, this, this dividing wall, it was a way of saying, oh, you can come in, but you cannot get as close to God as we are. So you're not as holy as we are. You're not as set apart as we are. You're not as clean or pure as we are. Now, if you were to sum all of this up, this, this culturally superior, morally better stuff, if you were to sum it all up, this whole case study, into one, one, one word, you know what it would be? Pride. Pride says, I am better. My morality is better. My culture is better. My politics are better. My race is better. My work ethic is better. My values are better. My neighborhood is better. And you see, none of us would actually say these things out loud, but there is something deep in the human heart that leads all of us to think like this. I was reading this week, there was a, uh, researchers did a study of college students. And uh, they asked college students to rate themselves in their ability to get along with other students. There were 829,000 responses. Guess how many of these students said they were below average in their ability to relate to other people? Zero percent. Guess how many said that they were in the top one percent of their ability to get along with others? Twenty-five percent. Now, if you're doing the math, it doesn't work, okay? See, pride runs deep in every human heart. And, and now we're getting to the universal truth that explains why there is hostility and division. You know why it is? Pride. What is it that breaks our peace? You know what Paul is saying here? What is it that breaks our relational peace with one another? It is pride. Have you ever noticed how we tend to moralize our differences? You know, we don't just think they are different. No, we think they are worse. And we don't just think, I am different. We think, I am better. And some of you, I've got to convince you of this. Let me give you some examples. See, if you're progressive, you say, you know, the problem with the world are conservatives. It's all those people who watch Fox News. And if you're, if you're a conservative, you say, you know, the problem with the world is all these progressive people. It's all these people who watch CNN. And, you know, if, if you're rich, if you're rich, you say, you know, you know what's ruining our city? You know what's ruining Oakland? Poor people. 
But if you're, if you're poor, you say, you know what the problem with Oakland is? It's all those rich people who live up in the hills. We, we, we moralize our differences. We even do this in the church with different worship styles. If you're Presbyterian, you look at all these Pentecostals and you say, they have no clue how to worship God. And if you're Pentecostal, you come in here and you're like, what's up with all this confession of sin and, you know, this, what, what's going on here? You know, and if you're non-denominational, you just think nobody does it right, right? Everybody, nobody does it right but you. See, we all have this sense of, I am, I'm better. I'm better. And the irony, the irony, I think there's a deep irony here. Because on the one hand, people love to talk about Oakland's diversity. And that is one of the things I love about this city, is its diversity, but everybody talks about how beautiful our city is because so many different types of people live here. But on the other hand, the reason we are so divided is because we are so different. See, we pretend like we celebrate our differences, but the reality is, is that we often demonize people who are different from us. Nicholas Kristof, who writes for the New York Times, he says that we've created a fake diversity in today's world. He says this, he says, we are, we are hypocritical. We welcome people who don't look like us as long as they think like us. And you see, the question is, is there anything that can actually help us? Is there anything that can unite us, that can bridge the gap, that can restore our peace? Yes. And this brings us to the last point. See, this passage, the first thing it does is it shows us this universal truth that pride breaks our peace. But the second thing it does is it shows us the Prince of Peace who breaks our pride so that we can have his peace and so we can have peace with one another. And how does he do it? Well, look at verse 15. Paul says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and listen to this, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. How does he do it? He does it through the cross. Every Christmas, friends, we need to remember that Jesus did not just come into this world to be born in a manger, but he came to die on a cross. And it's through the cross, Paul says, that we can actually experience the peace that Jesus came to bring. Now, how does that work? It does two things. Here's the first. The cross shows you how sinful you are. It shows you how sinful you are. See, the human heart wants to say, I'm better. But what the cross does is it shows you that you're actually no better than anyone else. It shows, you, it shows you that you are so sinful that it took nothing less than the death of God's Son to save you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a very famous preacher in the 19th century, uh, one time he gave a sermon to a very large crowd of people. And after, after the service, he went and he stood outside the church to greet people as they were leaving. And there was one woman who walked right up to him with a very serious look on her face. 
and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I have ever heard. I'm really praying those aren't the words I get at the end of today's service uh, that I've ever heard. She, and she said, and I wanted to be the one to tell you so. And then she just walked off. And there were all these people standing around, you know, it's kind of an awkward moment. They, they heard the whole thing happen. She walked off and everybody fell silent. And Charles Spurgeon looked at everybody and he said, she doesn't even know the half of it. And you see, the cross says that not only are we way worse than other people know, but we are actually way worse than we even we ourselves know. And you know what that does? It destroys any sense of pride. It destroys any sense of superiority. It makes it so that you cannot look down on anyone. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. And as long as you think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty moral person. I do the best that I can to live a decent life. You will always find yourself looking down on someone. You will always be able to find someone that you can say, they are not as good as I am. They're not as moral as I am. They don't care about the social causes that I do. They don't care about the world like I do. They don't care about the poor like I do. Now the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it shows you just how bad you are. And, and some of you, I know, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable because you, you know, you're, you're here exploring Christianity. And you say, this is one of the things that, I really, that really bothers me about religion in general and Christianity in particular is that it is so down on people. <laughs> it's so negative. And to think of yourself this way is actually not, it's not helpful or healthy for the human psyche. And, you know, that would be true were it not for the second thing that the cross shows you. The cross does not just show you how sinful you are, it shows you how loved you are. And so you've got to have both. And if you don't get both, then you're missing the cross. Romans chapter 5 says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when we stopped sinning, it says, while we were still sinners. The Christian gospel says that God did not wait for us to get our lives together and to start making all of the right decisions and to become very moral and good and religious before he loved us. It says, no, he loved us and he sent his son to die for us while we were still an absolute mess. While we still had hostility in our hearts towards him, while we wanted nothing to do with him, and while there was nothing in us to merit his love, God set his affections on you and me. The cross says that we are so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. And it says that we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. 
I love the way that Jerry Bridges puts this. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. And all of us, we fall on one of those two spectrums. Some of us think we're too bad for God to love us. God can never love me because of the things that I've done. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus died for sinners. While we were still sinners, God loved us. And some of us in this room think that we're too good to need God to love us. And that is a lie from the pit of hell too. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all more broken than we know, and we are all in Christ more loved than we know. And see, when you realize this, to the degree that you realize this, to the degree that you know and understand both how sinful you are and how loved you are, you know what it does? It will send you out into this world to be an agent of God's peace and healing and restoration. In a world of hostility, you'll be able to forgive others because God has forgiven you. In a world of pride where everyone is looking down on someone, you will look down on no one. And in a world that is divided by differences, you will learn to celebrate them. And you won't just celebrate them, but you will seek out relationship with people who are different from you. And see, you know where all of that starts? It all starts right here in the church. Where God unites us to people with whom we do not share a common culture or a common color or a common socioeconomic class, but a common Savior. A Savior who invites you and me to this table so that we can experience his peace. I don't just mean the peace of God. I don't just mean an internal peace. No, no, no. Jesus invites you to this table so that you can experience a relational peace. You know with who? With God himself. We're actually about to sing about it in just a moment when we end our service. There's this very famous Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's this line that says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Christmas means that you can not just only have the peace of God, it means you can have peace with God. In fact, to experience the peace of God, first you've got to experience peace with God. Before we can seek peace with one another, we need to know peace with God. Before we can be sent out as reconcilers in this world, we need to know that we are reconciled to God. And this table says that we are, friends, and it says that we are not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that God has done for us through his son, who is the prince of peace, who came into this world so that we might have peace with God and so that we might be sent out as agents of that peace with one another, with our city, and in the world. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body 
given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of this table, the good news of the gospel, the good news of your son, that while we were still sinners, you loved us and you sent your son for us. That is what this table is about this morning. It is not for those who have been good, been good or tried hard enough. But it is for people who come looking to your son, looking to the peace that we find in him, looking to him to restore our relationship with you so that we might become the people you've made us to be in this community, in our city, and in our world. Help us to believe these things this morning as we eat and drink together, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.